passed the CPA exam. And so had my bachelor's degree, I'm a CPA. And they said, oh no, you need your master's. So what's the next box, right? And so I decided, I said, okay, you know, I'm not gonna let someone tell me no, that I can't do something. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I'm so glad that our listeners are going to be able to hear from you because for a lot of different reasons, but one meaning just what our country, what our community, what our society has gone through with COVID and how it's just an unexpected challenge. But then secondly, you're such an accomplished entrepreneur. You're a leader within our community and you have a story that's just an amazing journey of you know putting yourself through college getting an education at the University of Memphis, starting out as a staff accountant at Smuckers, working your way up all the way through that organization, moving over and going to Coors, purchasing that facility, selling that operation, and then continuing on your entrepreneur gifts and skill sets into other companies and other investments, but all while being a, a woman with strong family, with love for her mother, uh, with love for her kids, love for her community, always looking for ways to serve the community on lots of different boards here in Memphis, such as Methodist and University of Memphis and lots more. So I'm really excited about our time. And I think just through some really good, candid conversation, I think any listener is going to be able to be encouraged with their own story, with their own journey on where they're headed, but then also just learn from a lot of wisdom that you've had uh, over throughout your career. So I'm really glad that we get to hear from you today. Yes, I'm excited as well. There's so much going on that uh, we really got to stay connected to the community probably more now than ever. You know, they don't see you in the community the way they saw you before, um, but they hear in your voice. Uh, I've tried to continue to stay connected with my LinkedIn, you know, just writing some articles and doing things like that, just to let people know that, you know, the, the normal energy that they had and that we have is still there. It's just that we're invisible right now. Well, we're seeing each other in a different way, right? Yes, ma'am. What What are some of the things you talked about before the virus and before, you know, social distancing? What are the things that you always prioritized, you know, being visible out in the community or giving back to the community? Like, what are the ways that you would do that before, you know, just this season we're in right now? Well, you know, if a nonprofit, you know, had an event uh, that was near and dear to my heart, uh, example, workforce development, you know, how do we improve the skills so that we can, you know, improve the living wage, you know, of our community. Uh, I would always show up because I want to make sure that, uh, you know, our best and brightest is sharing ideas so that we can move the needle. Uh, I'm more of a person of action. So, I, you know, if an organization is spending too much time doing nothing and just talking, and not really changing uh, the trajectory of our problem, I'm really not for those boards. And so I tend to go to those type meetings and ask a lot of tough questions. You know, who are they serving? How are they serving them? How are they addressing the issues that, you know, has caused them historically to not be successful? Example, you, know, you talk about putting on some of the skilled workforce programs. Well, one of the challenges that people have in some of the underserved neighborhoods like Fraser, Hickory Hill, and so on, is transportation, correct? I know you've heard a lot about lack of transportation. And yes, so ma'am. if we're going to put, put on this amazing program and it's put on, you know, in a section of town uh, that's difficult to get to, or it's only taught once, 
you know, a lot of our people who are in these underserved communities, they may be working, but they're only earning minimum wage. So they really need to have an opportunity that allows them to continue to earn that minimum wage, but also gain the, the training, you know, maybe on second shift, or maybe they're working second shift, they need to get the training on first shift. And so those are some of the things that I try to make sure when I'm at the meetings that the normal everyday man voice has a voice. That's my goal. What kind of, with that example, and I think you can obviously probably communicate or talk about it through your own career as well, but working a, like a shift, like an eight-hour shift, but then also going above and beyond to learn or to study, to improve, to gain more skills, you know, more personable assets, to advance, you know, that takes a lot of discipline and that takes a lot of just desire on the individuals, um, on their own effort to really do that. I guess two questions that come to mind. Now, as you're an investor, as you're a board member, as you're a community leader, how do you see that play out well throughout individuals in the community that do that? And then secondly, how did you do that when you were starting out your career and when you were working? Because it's very clear through your interviews and through your writings, you always took on more and you were you were present, you were just taking on as much as you could to provide as much value as you could. How do you see kind of through others and through yourself, what does that look like kind of on a day-to-day basis? Because I think sometimes we have a tendency to just hear things like, I mean, I do this, we all do this, we hear things, but how can we really drive that down on a day-to-day basis to where we're actually making progress? Well, you know, I only answer that two ways. I'll start with myself. Uh, interesting, you know, I started out as a staff accountant, like you mentioned. But one of the things I found after about five years is that the larger organizations wanted someone with a master's degree. Uh, they wanted someone who's passed the CPA exam. And so I was told no by a couple organizations. I was working for Smuckers. You know, I was just, I'm one of these people. I always try to stay in touch with what the world wants in terms of skills. So I would interview with people with other companies. Uh, someone would say, well, there's a great opportunity over here. I'd interview, and they would share with me what they were looking for in terms of skills. Am I right? And I found that I had yeah. a, a skill gap. Uh, I was told once by Shearing Plow, this was many, many years ago, uh, I had passed the CPA exam. And so I had my bachelor's degree. I'm a CPA. And they said, oh, no, you need your master's. So what's the next box, right? And so I decided, I said, okay, you know, I'm not going to let someone tell me no, that I can't do something. And so Carolyn went and applied to the University of Memphis and um, applied for the master's program. Talked to J.M. Smucker Company and said, hey, look, are you guys willing to pay the tuition because you have a tuition reimbursement program? This falls within the program. I did review the requirements before I walked into that office. And uh, sure enough, I, they said, yes, we will pay 100% of your tuition. And I went to school at night. And on weekend, I went to school. Oh, you would go all day Friday, then on Saturday. So you have to have a day off. But when you got that day off at Smuckers, uh, you actually worked 50, 60 hours before that Friday, okay? <laughs> you didn't get to have a day off and like, oh, gosh, this is a free day. No. Uh, I would work very long hours Monday through Thursday uh, to get that Friday off. So I did that for two years and I uh, got my MBA. My attitude is that, and someone said it best, when someone tells me no, uh, I'm, I'm almost hell-bent on doing it at that point. It's like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to show you, okay, uh, <laughs> what no looks like. And I always, 
you know that adrenaline rush that you hear about? When that adrenaline kicks in, it's amazing how you can invent time, how you can prioritize, how whatever it takes, you're going to get out there and do it at whatever it costs. You're going to make it work. And so with myself, I was told no, that I could not apply for a job because I didn't have the MBA. Now, let's take that a step further with just training again, everyday Joe. Uh, when I was, when I sold the brewery to Blue City Brewery, they had a problem. I got a call. I sold to them in May of 2011. And I was still there with them because I had a contract to work out a year so we could, you know, do a handoff and they wouldn't have any issues. But they came to me and said, Carolyn, we've got a major issue that we need you to work with us on. And, and George would give me specific things that he wanted from me, okay? So I didn't, put, I didn't interfere with their business because they owned the business after I sold it to them. But I worked on specific issues. So they had an issue with uh, how do we get the, work, the, 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 the larger workforce that they need to grow? You know, at that time, I think I had about 150, 160 people. They had visions of going to 500. And of course, I loved them to death because I knew that if they would go from 155 to 500 people, they're going to pay $20 an hour. They're going to pay health care. They're going to have 401k. You know what I mean? In Hickory Hill. How could you have any better if you're a community activist, right? They're right, right in the heart of where our need is, okay? So I said, you know what, George, don't worry about it. I'm going to work on this. So interesting enough, uh, Sam, I, I call Ben Watkins, Watkins Ubrall. Because I knew Ben had a direct contact with Southwest Community College at the time. I called Mayor Warden and uh, Mayor Luttrell and asked them to meet us at Ben Watkins' office on Poplar. Uh, I called Senator Tate because I wanted the state folks to be there. And then we got Southwest to come because they had the facility and they had the instructors to train. And then, of course, we had Blue City uh, HR uh, director there and some other board members from Southwest. And I asked Blue City to share the problem that they were experiencing with, you know, trying to increase the workforce. Blue City had gotten 40 or 50,000 resumes. They had been through maybe about 10,000 of those resumes. They had uh, brought an interview and ended up hiring 20 people. Sam, before the 90-day probation, all 20 were fired. Okay? And so they're saying, wait a minute. In six months, we've made no headway. And it's hiring. What, Carolyn, what are we going to do? And so I had the mayors there. And I said, you know, mayors, I said, you're invited here. I want you to hear the problem directly from the horse's mouth. Not from me. You're from the customer, right? And I said, but I want you to take this success model and I want you to sell it to other companies. I said, I'm not, we're not asking you for any money. And both mayors were looking at me like, she's lost it. I said, we don't want any money from you. I said, the reason we don't want any money from you is because I had Southwest sitting there, Sam. And I said, <laughs> I said, because Southwest, our taxpayers, these guys are our taxes at work. Am I right? Uh, yes, we, own, we, we own the facilities. We own the instructors. Why do I need any money? And so they looked at me like, I can't believe you said this. I said, so what we want to do, I want Blue City, the manufacturer, to work directly with Southwest, put on a training program, and you know, hire people. And give them an initial phase one training before they go to Blue City. Sam, this was Thanksgiving of 2011. Thanksgiving, 2011. Mayor Luttrell said that I wouldn't have this, pro this program done in six months. You said you would not? I would not have this program done in six months. This is Thanksgiving week. Now, right. here, here I just made a lot of money. Everybody thought I was going to be on an island Thanksgiving week. I'm sitting here arguing about workforce 
in a conference room the week of Thanksgiving. And I said, Mayor Luttrell, if you guys put on the program, it probably would be another year before we got this program. I said, that's why we don't want your help. I sure did. I'm not being negative or anything. I said, don't want your help. I said, you're only here so that when we're successful, you use the same model for other companies that are coming to our city. That's all I want you to be. You know, you're our spokesperson. You're our cheerleader. I need you to be that person when you see it. I, Sam, they doubted that we were going to be successful. Thanksgiving week. Southwest and Wynn and Blue City worked from Thanksgiving to Christmas to test people using Wynn's testing program uh, to identify 30 students that would start class on January 5th. I'm talking, wow. you're talking a very short period of time, okay? January 5th, we had our first class. We had students from uh, Millington who had been former military. Uh, we had people who had former manufacturing that couldn't find a job with a living wage. But we put the program on, the first program, we only put it on during the day. But we realized that was going to be a problem. We said the next program is going to be morning, going to have a program in the morning, a program you know, at 4 o'clock, not 3 o'clock. Because in manufacturing, people get off work at 3 o'clock. You need to give them time to get something to eat and get there by four, right? They've got to eat. I don't care what you say. <laughs> give them some food. And so we put the first program on. And the reason we only did one, because we knew that there were going to be some mistakes with the program. You know, we need to make some course corrections. And so we put the first program on. What we learned from that first program was we need to have them uh, do more math and more computer. So we added more days for computer training and for math. And so we uh, you know, adjusted the program. Sam, we finished that program in six weeks, and the employer was required to be in the classroom the whole six weeks. They had to have a representative there the whole time. So we told the, the, uh, the students that that person sitting right there is the employer, okay? So when they ask you questions, and they were, their employer actually taught part of the class, but when they ask you questions, they look at your attitude and so on, they're actually interviewing you every day for six weeks. You get to know them one-on-one. -on -one, you get to know them personally. We finished that first six-week program. Blue City hired over 80% of the people, over 80% of the people. All of them made probation. All of them made probation. But get this, Blue City lost probably four or five of the employees within six months. There was one young man, there were two young men I had sitting in front of Senator Tate. Senator Tate didn't make the meeting. And so I wanted him to see the results of this program. We brought in two young men one young man said that he had never made that much money. It was the best thing that ever happened to him in his life. He really had a chance to demonstrate his skills. Another young man had interviewed with about 10 different manufacturers, couldn't get a job because he was shy, Sam. He would not speak up. This program gave him six weeks to speak up and six weeks to demonstrate how smart he was. He ended up being one of the smartest employees that we had. Well, now, these, so, two guys, these two guys, one went on to another company within a couple of months. He went from making 80, eight, uh, $18 an hour to making $25 an hour. This is a young man that was making 12 So you're just saying, like, I mean, we could unpack this in just a tremendous amount of detail. Um, but, like, you know, with this story and with this whole lesson, you took a problem where everybody else was trying to solve it one way. And then you and then you got very creative and then you leveraged your network and then you went a completely different way and you did it in one month versus six after even skepticism. What you know, I know we just had Mother's Day on Sunday um, and you are one of 15 brothers and sisters, right? 
Yeah, well, there's 16 of us, but one Dak, yes. And you've always talked about dreaming big just throughout speeches you've given or lessons um, that you've taught. What advice can you share about your mother, how you learned how to have a strong work ethic, how you learned how to not take no for an answer? Maybe these were all from her. Maybe these were just formative through life experience, how you you know, were disciplined and you put yourself through college. What kind of lessons did you learn from your mother and how this played out um, to make you the woman that you are? You know, my mom taught all of us, all of her children, that we could be anything that we wanted to be. Yes, there were going to be obstacles. It was not going to be easy. Uh, It was going to be expensive. You know, think about it. uh, You know, my dad was working a truck driving job and we wanted to go to college. Well, who's going to pay for that? So she let us know up front. You know, a lot of times people say, well, you can go here, but they don't tell you the how. They don't tell you the challenges that you may encounter. Mom was really good about that. Uh, she was way ahead of her years. Uh, she knew that people were giving scholarships. You know, say, I'm going to give, I know this may sound funny, but my mom, uh, when I went off to college, she always told me, a college man. She did. She said, Mary College Man. She said, you know, he said, you can love that one as well as you can love the one that's not there, okay? He said, but here's the key. He can afford to pay alimony. The other one can't, okay? She said, so be careful who you date. So, I'm, you know, I know this sounds terrible, but if you weren't in college when I was at Memphis State, uh, you probably weren't going to date me because my mom said that you need to marry equals. Uh, you need to marry somebody who's ambitious like you. She always felt that because she had taught us to be so ambitious. She felt that if we did not have relationships with somebody who was trying to go in the same direction, her concern was that we would outgrow each other and we would end up in a divorce. She said that she said, a lot of times the reason divorces happen is people grow apart in a different direction. So you need to keep that in mind as to where you're trying to go. Make sure that you marry somebody who's trying to go there with you. I mean, Sam, the advice that she gave, I, I, one of my favorite advice that uh, I just, I wrote about recently, uh, mom was a maid, okay? My mother was a maid. She never finished high school. And uh, she was a maid for a doctor. She was only made for one family. And uh, after so many years, she stopped that. But, you know, she would always, mom observed everything. I mean, we knew it. Even with us, we knew she could tell we've done something wrong. It's like, mom, were you watching us, Okay. Uh, but she observed the family of the doctor. And, uh, you know, she told us, she said, you know, uh, I noticed that the doctor's kids always wanted to be doctors. They would, walk, they would run around and play doctor because they wanted to be like daddy, okay? And she said her concern was that, she was concerned her kids might, did, did, did that mean that her kids may want to be a maid? That was, a, that was a total fear for her. And because she feared that so much, uh, she decided that her kids needed role models. And she could not be that professional role model because she was a maid. How did you teach? You've got three children, right? Yes. Are they all girls? No, two girls and a boy. Okay. How did you teach your children to have a strong work ethic, but also that you loved them to where they knew that you loved them and that you supported them? How did you do both of those things? Because I think oftentimes you hear of parents at times that can be very driven with, you know, high expectations and things like that, but it's unique for children to be loved, but to also be taught to have a strong work ethic. How did, how did that play out in your family? Well, Sam, I'll start off by saying that my three kids were all, we're best friends. 
I mean, they know I'm driven, but we are very close. There's not much we can't talk about. My son uh, proofs my, my writing in my books, okay? Uh, he'll provide feedback. He's the youngest. Uh, but, you know, in raising them, uh, we had very high expectations for them. I mean, very, to your point, they understood, you know, at that time, uh, I wasn't wealthy. So they wanted, to go to, they wanted to go to a great college. They need to get great grades. Am I right? If they wanted to pick their college, they need to get great grades. They need to get a scholarship. So I always taught them, like my mom taught me, that if you get great grades, you can pick your college. And so my kids were, they saw how hard I worked. Now, keep in mind, when I was in graduate school, I had one child, had Jennifer. So Jennifer saw me studying. She saw study groups at the house. She saw how hard we hit it, okay? Um, my kids uh, participated in a lot of things that I did. When I w- would go to a board meeting or something in the evening after hours, I didn't drop my kids off. They went with me. And so they would see me at a nonprofit meeting. They see me at a board meeting. They see me at, uh, they would have to dress up. If we went to a dress up <laughs> event, I'm, now my son, I'll tell the story and he'll, he'll shoot me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> my son didn't want a suit on and did not want dress shoes on. He said, I'm not going to do it. I said, it's not a problem. So I want you to understand, Sam, that I respected their individualism. I expected their right to be individuals. But they have to respect my right, too. So if I'm going to a nonprofit, I need you to dress up. My right is you have to dress up. His right is he wasn't going to dress up, so he got to stay home. or went to my brother's house. So every time the girls and I and my husband would dress up to go to an event at night, my son would be dropped off at my brother's. He could not go because he was not going to wear dress shoes or suit. Wasn't going to happen. Or a necktie. Wasn't going to happen. So one day he comes to me. You know, uh, what's the sports ball? Mm-hmm. He knew the girls, they were all excited about the sports ball. They got free tennis shoes and all that stuff. So he was, they were so excited. They were talking about it for weeks. They had to go get a new outfit. We just ignored Chris because he wasn't going. He wasn't going to put on dress clothes or dress shoes. And so everybody in the family is talking about it. they can't wait for the sports ball. And so he comes up to me one day when the girls weren't around. You know, you got to save face, right? Yeah. He comes to me and say, oh, Mom, when can we go shopping? I said, Son, what are you talking about? He said, Well, when can we go shopping? I said, Shopping for what? He said, I got to have an outfit because I want to go to the sports ball. So, Sam, he dressed up and uh, he put on his dress clothes, put on his dress shoes. He went to all sports balls after that. But I had no, you know what? I let him be himself, and, but you can't go with me unless you meet the standard. And so the kids saw that I was somewhat a perfectionist. And somehow that does rub off on your DNA. They saw how I did things. And so my kids are so competitive. My siblings are competitive too, okay? Uh, my, my kids have had to watch us play volleyball against each other. My siblings and I, we will drive all the way to Gulf Shore to play volleyball against each other. Can you believe that? On the sand. <laughs> and the kids have to pick sides. So we get down there, we pick sides. And I mean, we are playing for dear life. Like, like we're going to get paid for this or something, okay? Uh, we play baseball against each other. We'll go out to the field. This is just my sister and brother. So many of us that we can actually, you know, we create two teams throughout. The in-laws, they wouldn't always play with us, believe it or not. My husband would never play. He says that we play to win, so uh, he did not want to be caught up in that. 
Are there things? Are there things now that you've thought about or learned where it's appropriate to to channel and to focus with that competitiveness? But then there's other areas where you might have wished years ago, like on how to you know where to apply it and where not to, or do you apply it across the board? No, Sam. To your point. I look back and I give my kids a little bit of different guidance than what I had myself. Keep in mind, you know, when I got my master's, you know, I was working 60, 70 hours a week. Uh, so I didn't have much of a life. Uh, I had to squeeze in working out. And in physical fitness, it was very important to my mom and it's very important to me. But I had to almost make time. And typically, that's what I gave up. Even though I would try to get out, walk, and do things. So I would have to die without the always working out. Or I had an instructor throw me out of class because she said I was going to hurt myself because I wasn't consistent enough, okay? <laughs> I, you know, I don't want my kids to do that. I don't want my kids to have – I didn't want them to work 60, 70 hours a week and get their master's. So I told my kids when they started college that if they chose to go past their bachelor's, that we would pay for it. I just didn't want them to live that kind of life. Uh, I think that a better balance uh, is a good thing. My mind was not as balanced as it should be. I was totally focused on my children and my career. Not enough on having fun. I think that fun is not overrated. Uh, so I really encourage my kids to have a better balance. Uh, I want them to pursue their dreams. Uh, you know, Whitney, my middle daughter, loves the arts. Okay, so you would say somebody like me who has been focused on business and financial, Carol, what do you think of the arts? Well, that's her love. Uh, she supports the arts community. My daughter has a, Whitney has a degree in accounting. She is, her goal is to help the art community be more profitable. You know what I mean? These artists who are supposed to be starving artists. So she's taking her business training and using it a different way, not necessarily for financial gains for herself. And so I really strongly encourage that. That balance is really important. I did not balance as well as I should have. If, if you ask me what was one of the things, that is one of the things that I would do, would have done differently. But now keep in mind, different times, I didn't have a fallback position. If I couldn't pay my bills, um, if I couldn't afford my kids' education, my parents couldn't afford it. Right. My children have a different balance that I can help them with things that I had no help with. And so well, I know why I did it. What, um, so you've talked about, passion or interest like with your children what advice would you give to let's say somebody right now male or female who's in their late 20s maybe 30s or 40s and let's say they got laid off uh because of covid things or maybe non-covid things or maybe they're struggling just really trying to think about their work what they want to do the most or where they feel like they can provide the most value because like i mean just thinking about your story and hopefully maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, like your work ethic is incredible and it's very strong and it's very hard to work that hard or to be that interested in something that you're really, you're almost indifferent about. And I think a lot of people, you know, do their work and they're kind of indifferent about it. So then they're just, you know, doing it, putting in their 40 to get the check. Right. But you're talking about your children. You're talking about how you know, you want them to, to do what they love and what they enjoy and to really go wholeheartedly af after it. What kind of advice would you give someone, like, let's say because of this virus or let's say maybe before the virus, like, how does somebody think about their career 
and their interests and to really work hard to provide value, to work as hard as they can and do the best job that they can, but how to, how to really kind of find that gift. Because obviously your gift is in operations, accounting, leadership, entrepreneurship. I mean, I've, I've heard the way you can talk through a financial statement. You know, you can see things in three seconds than, you know, what a lot of people can see their entire lifetime, just how quickly you can uh, understand data and numbers and things like that. How would you speak to that? Sam, I would tell someone in their 20s, um, you know, you and I talked earlier about looking at, let's look at different stages in life. In your 20s, you need to get all the experience you can get. You need to experience things because I think in your 20s, you really don't know what you want. You know what I mean? You don't have enough broad, you, don't, you haven't experienced life enough. So I would recommend that uh, you get as much experience, as much education, uh, take on new projects. Get involved in some things until you can figure out really and truly who you are and what you want. Uh, by the time you're in your 30s, now you've gotten more education, you've experienced some things. I think you need to start channeling who you want to be. So now you need to go after promote promotions and opportunities that's right there in your lane. Now, the beauty of your 20s, because you went out there and got more education, more experience, is that you can talk it. A lot of times I've seen people try to interview for a different opportunity, but they can't talk it very well. So in your 20s, you've got to go out and try some things. In your 30s, now you've got to start honing in on who you are and what you want to be. But find out what your passion is. Your passion is everything. You know, uh, Leo Cowley once said in a meeting, and I know it's somebody else's quote, but I remember him saying it first. He said, if you work, uh, if you work your passion, You'll never work a day in your life. Would you say, like, you know, for example, the story that you talk about using hard money lending to buy um, the Coors facility? Yes. Like the amount of, like, obstacles and difficulty that you articulate just in that one deal, you know, is, you know, 90% more than what most anybody would go through. Right. Would you say that, you know, you discovered and you saw early on that, you loved accounting, you loved business, you loved entrepreneurship, you loved building organizations. I mean, how did you see that play out in your own life? Well, I love complicated things, okay? I'm a a problem solver. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Well, even as a GM, you're going to have, I was a fixer, GM. Uh, You know, there are general managers who come in, just maintains what's going on. I'm a fixer, Jan, which means I come in and analyze your operation to fix it. And I love it. I will think about something. Uh, when, when I'll think about it, then you'll stop me from thinking about it because a problem will hit me that's for, that needs my attention. I'll actually go back to thinking about it again. I'll look at all the data. I'll bring the team in. I'll bring employees in. I'll bring everyone in that I think that can solve this problem. And I'll present everything to them. And we'll come up with a solution. I tell you, some of the things that we saw at Coors, people were shocked. (laughs) I'm talking about things that people had let go on for years that they couldn't solve. I I told someone the other day, I said, you know, I can't change flat on my tire, but I can listen to a packaging line and tell you there's a problem. I know that sounds crazy. I can't fix it, but I can tell you it's not normal. And if I bring the mechanic over, I said, look, listen. Is that normal? They'll say no. Well, if you listen to this one, you listen to that one, they should sound the same. Okay? And if there's a r- routine to it, 
you can tell the rhythm that the rhythm is not right. I'm a problem solver, and I love it. I love solving problems like that. Uh, now, that takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. Uh, somebody asked me a couple of years ago, would I want to be a GM again? I said, no. <laughs> no, past that point in my life. Uh, because it just totally sucks you in, and you can't do the other things. I can't do my nonprofit world and stuff like that. So, no. Uh, were you thinking about other things in that season or were you so into what you were doing? I was so into what I was doing that it did not matter. And what happened, remember I said, go get some more experiences. Once I got out of that and I had time to to go do these other things, like work with IRT, work with workforce development, work with these different boards. I said, Hmm, I can do a lot more using my experience. I can have a greater impact. I like the greater impact. So earlier in our conversation, we talked about, you know, dreaming big. We talked about obstacles. And through your own story, you've talked about leveraging relationships and yes. networks and creative thinking. How have you seen in your own life and what were you thinking in those times when you really, when you would go for a big dream or you would go for a big goal and you would encounter, you know, obstacles or you would have a you know, like a failure of some sort, not a final determining failure, but just something that didn't go right or, you know, a relationship that didn't go well. Like how you just, even the way that you took my call when I called you about doing this podcast interview, it's like before I even finished what I was saying, you're like, I'm in. It's like you have this this mindset or the words, like your vocabulary, it's just growth, it's progress, it's like moving forward, it's advancement. How has that played out in your own life when you've gone for things and they haven't gone well, a relationship, you know, didn't turn out right or a partnership or a business issue, but then you keep moving forward and then you're thinking about all the things going well. Like, what does that look like for you? Well, Sam, first thing, you know, when things don't go well, it's all in how you classify them in your mind. Okay. You learn from it. If I learn from a situation, it's never a loss. That's the first thing you have to tell yourself. It is never a loss. If you go into something and two things didn't work right, the problem that I see in society right now, everybody focuses on the two things that went wrong and don't, they don't give any recognition to the 10 things that went right. Am I right? Yes, ma'am. So you need to hold on to the 10 and adjust the two. But a lot of times we throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't make any sense. Why do you think, where's that come from? The human nature, that's more normal than not, okay? That is a lot more... People move on to the next thing. How many times have you seen that? Okay, that didn't work. Let me move on to the next item. No. What you have to do if you really want it, and I'm one of these people. Remember I said I'm stubborn, right? Right. So I'm going to sit there, and I will most likely list on paper, and I actually put my book away before we got on the phone. I will make notes in this book (laughs) about, about the situation, what I didn't like about it, what went right, what went wrong. And then I'll ask myself, you know, the two or three things that went wrong, who can solve that, okay? It's working on a project uh, for the beverage uh, company uh, last two weeks, and I ran into an issue the last few days, and at night I'm saying, who can solve this problem? What relationship do I have that can give me answers? So get this. I need to get to the CEO of, uh, who has sold this company for half a billion dollars. I'm not going to tell you what his name is. But uh, he was on stage two years ago. And he had said on stage he sold his company, but I knew he used to own the widget that I needed, okay? 
So I said, okay, who has this person's telephone number? And so I knew who had his number. I, ha- I called her and I said, I need you to call him on my behalf. I got a problem and I need you to work through it with me. So sure enough, this is no lie. Call her at nine o'clock. Now I'm at the office early, but I didn't want, you know, I try not to be, you know, get on people's nerve at eight o'clock. I try to give <laughs> them now, okay? Yeah. And so I uh, called her. She said, send me a short uh, email for what you're looking for. And within one hour, that former CEO called me. We talked through the problem, and he gave me some new direction in terms of where I could find my solution. So, but I did. I sit there and I wrote it in my book, and I said, okay, I got to solve this. And so, all the parts I needed to produce this product, we have everything that I need to produce it now. And that was finished on Monday. My where team did not believe it. So how did you learn that? I mean, you talk about everybody wants to focus on the issues. They want to focus on the problems. But with you personally, how did you learn how to recognize the problem, you know, acknowledge it, process it, but then stay focused on the overall picture? How did you learn that personally? Oh, gosh. I give Smuckers a lot of credit because I started there when I was 20 years old for really investing in me. In fact, there was one company that invested in my education and skills. You know, when I started with them, I had a bachelor's degree. Uh, but you and I both know I need a lot more. Uh, I need presentation skills. I need analytical skills. Uh, believe it or not, Kepner Trago, have you heard of that? No, ma'am. Kepner Trago is a problem-solving decision-making process. Smuckers taught every employee at their 13 plants that process. And if somebody like me as a manager, I had an opportunity to become a facilitator, uh, take on additional training. So Smuckers was more than willing. If I saw a training class that I wanted, they allowed me to go. And of course, they paid the tuition, the travel, everything, and the time off. So I give them a lot of credit. Now, I will tell you, of all the people that I worked around, Sam, I was the only one to go. <laughs> I had managers tell me later after I got my master's, I passed the CPA exam. I've been to all t- the types of presentation classes and analytical classes. They said, oh, my God. They said, we saw what you were Now we know what you were doing. You were preparing yourself for the, tw- for the future. Remember I said in your 20s? Right. Education and experience. I volunteered for every board. So when SAP was just a word, I volunteered with Smuckers on the SAP team. And somebody said, well, you can't join because there's no one else to do your work. I said, what if I tell you I'll do all my work and I'll also do the team? You know, I always, I would always tell smokers, I'll do my work. I don't need you to replace me, but I'll also do the team. So I would work harder than everybody else so that they would choose me for the team. Can somebody have the kind of hunger that you're talking about and desire without having to put yourself through college, without having... To, to fight so hard to provide Sam, for yourself growing up? Sam, Do you think it's, it's possible? Harder. It's harder. It is harder. I see that. Uh, you know, I was motivated by where I came from. And, you know, some of the stories that I share with people uh, about how difficult it was. I told someone, of course, I can't send me to jail now because seven years have passed. A lot of seven years have passed. You know, when I was in the third grade, I had to turn the water back on. You know, MLG and W would come turn it off. I would go back out there and turn it off, <laughs> back on. <laughs> you said seventh? How, what, how old were you? I was in the third grade. Oh, wow. Like water key and everything? Did they have water? I had the, I had the water key. Golly. Yep. They, they, they sent me out with the water key, and I knew how to turn it. I knew how to take the top off and then turn it back on. Uh, you know, the, that was survival. 
And so, yeah, I learned a lot. And I learned how to look around and make sure that, you know, nobody was watching me. Right. <laughs> you know, third grade today, you know, we're concerned about, you know, what they're going to eat. Am I right? Right. There was no third grade to worry about turning utilities back on. Uh, you know, I would go out and hunt for food when I was, you know, when I was four or five years old. Uh, there was a, I was the only one home because the other kids were at school. Uh, I would go down there. I used, we used to live in Midtown. It's one of my stops on my, you know, 13 moves. And I would go down the street uh, to the store. And my brother has showed me how, at what time, they put the, the food out that was the cans that were dented or the stuff they were throwing away. But they were at school. So I would go there and I would go in the dumpster and get it. And because my mom had, when I was four and five, she had my sister who was two years younger, then she had twins. And then, of course, right after that, she had another set of twins 11 months later. So mom had a lot of kids at home. She couldn't go. So I would go to the dumpster and then I would go to the store, run the errands. During our interview, you've talked about solving problems. You've talked about just the enjoyment that you have with that. You've talked about creative solutions. You also, through previous just interviews and just other research that I've done, your desire and belief in the importance of customer service, customer relationships, uh, solving problems, communication, it it stands out um, very clearly. But you're also a strategist. You're also a deep thinker. Like you have a notebook that you're processing what went well, what did not go well, who can solve the problem. How do you structure your days and how do you structure your office environment? And I know things have changed over time as you've, you know, had more um, roles where you had, you know, people you're reporting to and then others were reporting to you and then different companies, et cetera. But how do you structure your days to where you're, it sounds like you're just, you're reactive, but then you're also very proactive. Like there's a balance there. And a lot of people, like for me, it's easy just to be almost like, far-fetched and you're thinking about trying to solve things, you're thinking more into the future. And then when you're dealing with fires burning or something like that, it can really agitate you. But you, you seem to have an ability to do both. How does that, what does that look like throughout your work day? Yeah, well, I don't agitate real easily. That's the first thing. Uh, I have a rule. I tell my people, you know, right now, you know, everybody's dealing with the coronavirus and everybody's worried about one day being unemployed. Am I right? Yes, ma'am. I tell my team, I said, well, how do I look? And they said, you don't look worried. I said, then that means you don't have to worry. (laughs) Until I look worried, you don't ever have to look worried. And I'm very, my team really loves working around me because I rarely, my blood pressure rarely goes up. Uh, You know, we will solve it. We'll get past this day as well. You know, I'm a long run player. uh, So today doesn't have to be perfect for me to win the race. I have to be in the game. I have to be playing. But I don't have to win on Tuesday because there's always Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, right? Have you always been that way? Mm, yeah, pretty mellow. But, so you, you know, must- on the outside, mellow. On the inside, not mellow. Uh, by nature, I'm probably wound too tight. Uh, but you wouldn't know it looking at me. And so that's probably not good for your blood pressure, okay? Uh, but I always look like I'm in control. Uh, but there are times when inside, I know I can be wound tight. Yeah. Because I want to get to the end game the way I want to get there uh, really badly. 
Now, it's not just my vision of the future. It's the team's vision. But I still want to get there. Once we set a goal, oh, my goodness. We, we built a strategy for this company, my daughter and I, and, and we worked a strategy. And then you run into obstacles because you're going to run into obstacles because what we're dealing with, Sam, is 100 years of how business has been done. Am I right? Is this, and, and just for some context for people listening, is this your warehouse fulfillment company? Well, this, this is um, our industrial supply company. Okay. Uh, this is our grain company. Uh, this is our beverage company. Uh, the business has been done a certain way for 100 years. Uh, it's been done with people who they've had relationships with for the last 50 years. You know, had, granddad had a relationship with their granddaddy. They were, you know, you know college friends together. Uh, well, I wasn't a college friend at the time, but I want to play in this space. So I've got to figure out with the team, how do we help people see that we're the, per- we're the organization they want to do business with? Because I tell people, we're going to love you the most. Okay. <laughs> we are. We're going to jump through hoops. We're going to take care of what you need. Uh, I had uh, someone that called, and I'm telling you, what they asked for is probably impossible in most people. Mine, I've called three different organizations because, you know, getting stuff right now uh, that's in the PPE category and so on is not easy, right? Right, right. Um, I'm calling relationships all across the United States saying, here's an opportunity. I need you to get me some information on this uh, and see if you can service this. We're pulling things. We're pulling rabbits out of the hat, but it takes relationships. But the problem you have, I have relationships that I've built over here, but there's new relationships that I need to build. And, yeah, we're breaking into that, but it's not fast enough for me. So, it's not I mean, enough. you're running just as hard as where you as when you were when you sold your bottling company. I am. It, it sounds like in just the way that you're talking and your tone of your voice, you're waking up each day with just as much focus on these long-term objectives that you have with these companies, I mean, you're locked in. Well, well, Sam, let me tell you what my mind is. My mind is in, we won't say, you know, you said 20s, 30s, 40s. We won't say where I am on that side, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) But uh, today, I'm driven for a different purpose, though. You know, my purpose now is that I think there are doors that aren't open that should be open. Uh, for women and minorities. Uh, we're fighting fights that should have been over 20 years ago, uh, but those fights are still out there. Um, the people who can change this doesn't recognize that the change has not happened enough. You know, one of the things I try to uh, share with the business community, that if you want to solve problems in Fraser and Hickory Hill, South Memphis, you've got to have a thriving business in those communities. Am I right? Yes, ma'am. You have a thriving business. And so as you look at women and minority businesses, there's almost 40,000 in Shelby County. I don't know if you know that. Over 40,000 women and minority businesses in Shelby County. I would venture to say that over 30-some thousand, if probably not 45,000, are actually located in those communities that has the greatest need. So if we want to solve the problems in those communities, why don't we do what we can to try to activate and grow those 30,000, 40,000 companies, right? right? Because if you've got a company located in Frazier, most likely you're going to hire somebody in Frazier, 
Am I right? If you got a business located in Hickory Hill, you're going to hire somebody from Hickory Hill. So now your transportation problem becomes less because these people are working in the community. But the problem you have in Frazier, what do you have, Nike? That's it. Right. Nike can't hire everybody. Now I know Amazon's about to put a facility out there. You look at Hickory Hill, there's not been any growth there in the last 20 years. You know, the brewery changed hands, but the brewery was already there. Tell me what new manufacturing plan has gone up at Hickory Hill. I think this is a great segue into another question that I was going to ask you. What is that, like you talked about, there's, you know, fires that we're still putting out or doors that are still not open that, you right. know, we a lot of us still think are open, but they're not, or they think these things were solved, but they're not. Like in a real specific way, you know, what exactly are you referencing and what you know, what, what do you think needs to be done? Because I think this ties into your purpose and what you've talked about, what you're working on now. Well, you look at the general contractors, all the construction that was going on before the pandemic, okay? Right. Uh, we have not successfully grew one black or female general contracting firm that's of size that can take on a major project. Not one. Okay. You know, when I travel around town, there is, um, when I go like to St. Louis, uh, there are very successful women and minorities there that you can actually point to. Um, when you go into Denver, Colorado, very successful women and minorities there. But I mean, when I say very successful, I'm talking about these people have companies that are half a billion, billion dollar companies, okay? You can't point to that in Memphis. I don't care what you're talking about, white female or black female. You know, I don't care about black male. You're not going to find one that's in that space, okay? You ask the question, what do do I think Memphis needs to look like? What does it look like in the future? You know, my hopes and dreams for Memphis in the years to come is that what we have to change, we've got to have a woman uh, in the mayor's seat. There's never been a female mayor uh, in our city. We need to have a female in the governor's seat. Uh, We need a female. Now, we have Blackburn as a senator, so she finally made Senate. So we have a woman in the Senate. Uh, Congress, uh, we had a congressperson. We had, uh, what's her name? Older lady. I know her well. No, she wasn't Congress, though. She was state. So have we had a female congresswoman from our area? I don't think so. Right. No. Uh, next 15 years, I'd like to see black and a female billionaire from our community, from Shelby County. <laughs> black and a female billionaire from Shelby County. Name one for me. A, a white woman or a black woman who's a billionaire in Shelby County. I, I don't know of one, unless maybe Fred Smith's wife. Uh, By default. Right. <laughs> Don't take that. But, uh, <laughs> but no, by default. And she did not raise that company. I want to know a company that a now I'm talking where the the woman earned it. Okay? Right. Give me one. Well, we earned not married into it. I can give you one a couple that married, okay? Yeah. There's there's not one. That's exactly. And so that's what I like to see us in the next 15, 20. And what happens there, uh, Sam, is that all of a sudden the world becomes, Shelby County becomes more comfortable with us taking on those identities, okay? Because we've never had those identities, whether that's, a, you know, a senator or whether that's a congressman or whether that's a mayor. People don't see us there. 
That's the change I like to, and then all of a sudden that change leads to other changes. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. It opens different doors, okay? And so right now you say, Carolyn, you work really hard. I do. I work really hard. I'm in places that I'm watching things happen, but I'm making sure that those conversations, I'm on the lottery board, I'm on the Federal Reserve Board, but I'm making sure the conversations are about the right things that's going to lead to the right outcomes. Where it's going to put women and minorities in the right places. It's going to change who we are in the next 15, 20 years. And do you think, like, you were able to build your career and to take the chances that you did? Um, you had opportunities through Smuckers, but you went after all of those additional opportunities and trainings and seminars and certifications. Like, you went above and beyond to receive that all of that extra, um, you know, training and expertise, et cetera. And then when you bought the Coors Brewery, it was still, you were still rejected from traditional lending. So you had to take the risk of taking hard money at like 12, 13%. And it was what, $9 million, that that acquisition? Yes, but I borrowed 15. Okay. So you took, you borrowed $15 million from a hard money lender at, at 12, 13%. It was ridiculous. And nobody. Probably mafia rates, okay? <laughs> right. Like, nobody in there, like, because of who you are and the risks that you've taken and the drive that you had, like, you did that. Like, but the deck, you know, was stacked against you. And it's stacked against a lot of entrepreneurs, but yeah. it was stacked very high against you. And so I think kind of what you're talking about to, to, to change this, to have the first African-American billionaire, to have the first female billionaire, or to have the first uh, female mayor, et cetera, are you saying the solution is to really do the best job that you possibly can within the community on providing the resources and trainings and equippings for people that do not, are not kind of privileged with what they have? So where you're trying to find the people that are most capable or gifted to take on those roles to where you give them kind of whatever they can to grow and to, to kind of develop as good as best they can. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You know, you want to, you want your, your first mayors in those categories to be from your community because they're going to love the community as much as we do. Uh, you don't want them to be a transplant. You want them to, to appreciate the pain that the community has been through. I believe that our mayor can come from any of these communities that we have here in Shelby County. Uh, but I want to make sure that everyone in these communities have an equal opportunity. Uh, I want to make sure that the quality of education uh, in these communities are as close to equal as possible. Uh, you know, I come from some of the toughest communities around. When, we say, when I hear people in meetings say, well, they can't learn. They've had a bad education. I went to Melrose. Okay, I come from inner city. It was a hundred percent minority school. Um, I went from there to you know, you know to Memphis State. So if those kids can't survive, why did I make it? So we have to, as as a community, we have to stop saying what these kids can't do and start saying what they can do. You ask me why are my kids the way they are? It's because, and I tell my daughter this, who has two kids. You have to inspire people to want to do better. You have to inspire them. And so 
my kids were inspired because they would see me. And, and I didn't do things and say, whoa, me. It's a pity party. Instead, I demonstrated I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed getting smarter. I enjoyed being the smartest. And they enjoyed being the smartest. You've got to decide who you want to be. And so all the kids that we have in this community can, can be exceptional. But we have to stop telling them that they can't. You know, we have kids, you know, I was on the board of Stacks, Soulsville for over a decade. And those young kids that go to the Soulsville Charter School have all been told that they can be the best that they want to be, that they can graduate from college, they can be a lawyer, they can be a doctor. They've been, they're, they're told that over and over again. And what happens when you look at those kids, they have a different level of confidence about them than, kid, than kids at other schools. That confidence gives them the courage to go try. You say, Carolyn, you go take risks. You gotta have courage. You gotta have confidence to take risks. Am I right? Yes, ma'am. You know, when I go out and take risks that I take today, again, let's talk about these relationships. Let's go back to relationships. I know when I take risks and these five things may fail, I have people that I can call after five o'clock that I can say, I had a question for a doctor. One doctor told me one thing. And so what did I do at night? I called a doctor friend of mine. I said, hey, look, I was told this. Uh, and we talked for two hours, okay? <laughs> uh, you've got to have those relationships. You've got to build those networks. I promise you, I tell all young people that. And when I have an opportunity, I take these young entrepreneurs who are in their 20s and 30s, I try to take them to meet the Society of Entrepreneurs, the people who have arrived, because I want them to be able to call someone after five o'clock to get their question answered. We don't have to have all the answers, Sam. We have to know who has the answers. My mother taught me that. She said, you need to know who has the answers and be willing to call them. Build that relationship, build that network. Now, relationships and networks are worth more than what most people can appreciate. What would you tell somebody, let's say they're in their 20s or 30s, but I know people that are even in their 50s and 60s that still live this way, but where they don't have that forward thinking or kind of abundance mindset where they're only thinking about the negative or they're only thinking about the bad. I mean, I even think about seasons of my own life where, I mean, I've looked at even my thinking and my thoughts and the ways that I'm grateful, how it's evolved and changed, but it's it's a lot of work uh, sometimes when it when it feels like when you're going from a glass half empty, pessimistic mindset to more of a learning mindset. What advice? Because it's not too late. What advice oh, would you give you. somebody that's hearing this, and they might be challenged with their thinking or their negativity or their pessimism? Like, what advice would you give somebody to really grow and to develop that side of their thinking? They're going to have to, there's a couple of ways they can do it. One, they have to have the strength of checking themselves. You know, check yourself when you say something, you're actually processing, you're saying, no, stop that, okay? Another way is to have somebody who you trust and that's around you enough and ask them to check you, okay? I had a gentleman that worked for me when I was with Honeywell and he was negative all the time. We would go, he was a sales guy and a technical guy, so we'd go to a sales call. And I noticed that it wasn't five minutes out of his mouth, he found something negative to say. 
And so I said, oh my God, like, you know, even if the building's burning, let's sort of focus on the part that's not, okay? Right. <laughs> this part's not burning. So let's go in this direction, okay? So do you know, I finally, at every meeting, I told him from that point forward, he had to sit next to me. <laughs> I made him sit next to me. And I told him, I said, we're sitting next to each other because I'm going to check you. And I said, you know, I have your best interest at heart. And he did. He believed that. Whoever checks you, you need to have your best interest at heart. You need to trust them explicitly, okay? I said, when I touch you on the leg, you've gone too far. You need to wind it down, <laughs> okay? Uh, or if I say, well, why don't you share a little bit more about this? See, I know enough about whoever checks me need to know me real well. So they should know how to bring the positive out of me. I, they've got to get you to say something positive. You know, when I was a general manager for Coors, my job was to turn up the rocks. What that means, I got to find all the bad stuff. So I would bring, I'd have team meetings, and I'd bring in between 10 and 15 people to a meeting. Once a month, and I did it on every shift, first, second, third shift. And when they come into the room, we had one hour, only one hour. For the first 30 minutes, they got to tell me all the negative things. They got the bitch and mom. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a few rules, and that rules were very few. Okay? You said, you said, sorry, you said this was 30 minutes? No, it was one-hour meeting. They got 30 minutes to bitch and moan. Uh, okay. And, but I had to have 30 minutes to fix them. Yeah. Because if I let them do that for the whole hour, when I send them back to the workplace, guess what I've done? I've damaged them. I've sent them back to the workplace in a damaged state. So they're going to keep doing it. So the first 30 minutes, everybody got a chance to turn up the rocks, tell me all the bad things that were happening. And then the next 15 minutes, I would, we would talk about, I, I look at the list of things that we talked about, and I would address most of the issues. I'd say, I had one gentleman tell me, now this was in 2001, 2002. When they hired me in 1991, I lost my seniority. In 1992, they didn't give it back, and the unions didn't fight for me to get it back. Now, keep in mind, it's 2001, 2002. I didn't even work for the company, okay? I just started in 2001. And I'm sitting there, and I said, okay, I can't leave this guy damaged because now I, I've got stuff from 1991. He's hating on everybody. <laughs> he was. He was hating on everybody. I said, I got to stop this. And so I said, uh, I said, okay, let's go down the list of things I'm going to try to answer today. I said, let's start with yours, 1991. I said, you understand I wasn't being paid by the company, right? <laughs> <laughs> I said. What year? I said, but let's talk about the way I would think about that. I said, 1991, uh, Strolls sold the company. Uh, Strolls was going out of business and sold off, wasn't going to uh, keep the Memphis plant. And Coors came in to save your job, save your seniority with the Teamsters. Didn't cut your pay. The only thing they couldn't do, they couldn't give you that time back because they were a new organization. I said, so you got to focus on the things that you've been able to do with your family with this great pay, great benefits. I said, you know, you're paying benefits. I don't know any company in the whole city that pays, that kind of pay and those kind of benefits. So I can't do anything about it, but all I can say is that, you know, you got to look at when to be thankful and when to let something go. I did. And I what? said, I told him it was just my opinion, uh, but the company had done some really great things for him and his family. Whether you want to believe it or not. I mean, this person was probably making, this is 2001, probably making $70,000 a year as a mechanic. That's not bad money. No. With a high school education. Right. Working 40 hours a week. 
Working 40 hours? Well, no, they were working 50, 60. They, they work, mechanics work a lot of overtime. Okay. But, uh, but, you know, you've got to make sure that when you're talking to people, that they see that you're positive. Things, negative things are going to happen, but you don't have to dwell on it. Okay? Too many people dwell on it. Let them take it. It takes on a life of its own. I refuse to let that happen. And so my last 15 minutes of those team meetings, I would always go to some positive things. You know, the list wasn't all negative, okay? So I always say that the, the end of the list that was positive, I would talk about all the positive things that happened. I would tell jokes. I would. I would tell jokes. Everybody would be laughing. My admin said, Carolyn, I've never heard people laugh until you came along. I would take something somebody said, and I would twist it, and I'd make it funny, right? <laughs> and uh, everybody would be laughing. So they leave out of the room. And uh, before they left, I would say, hey, Bob, uh, thank you for the feedback. And I would go through everybody's name. I had 600-some employees. Well, actually, I was learning everybody's name. So I would have to say the name three times to get it, okay? So when I would ask them, when I comment on their question, I would always say their name. And I was a consultant for Honeywell. So when you're a consultant, you're always going to these new and new call, sales calls. Well, I had a little technique that I had my little book that you saw. And when everybody would introduce themselves, I would say, Sam, Barbara. I would write, a, I'd have a seating chart in my book. So then I'll address them. I said, well, Sam, so what do you think about that? I know I thought, oh, this lady's brilliant. Well, I'd have a seating chart. <laughs> <laughs> but I personalized the relationship, okay? And uh, so my employees, so the first round, I was using my seating chart. Then when I come back and address their question, I was working from my memory. Then when they walk out the door, I can't look at a seating chart when they're, when they're going back to work, right? right? I would take each one of their hands and say their name. <laughs> now, I had a technique, Sam that I would only say their first name. I never worry about remembering your second name, your last name. And somebody said, well, why? I said, nobody walked to me and said, hey, Carolyn Chisholm Hardy, okay? <laughs> they said, hey, Carolyn. Am right. I right? Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I said, so in my mind, I had to learn 650 new words, okay? And uh, not 1,300. They said, oh, okay. I said, so no, I learned 650 new words. So within my first three months, I had knew everybody's name. That's, that's a great story. The way that you were talking about the gentleman that he would sit next to you and when he was going too far or just kind of going down a downward spiral, too much of negativity. I was just thinking about how how have you created a sense of urgency, of continuous improvement, of executing, you know, aggressive just initiatives, but then also creating like stability within the workplace? Like I know you've talked about culture, but you seem very clear-minded on your goals, your objectives, on where the company's going, on fostering engagement and buy-in from the team. You also seem like you would not tolerate things that do not meet your expectations over a period of time. But, you know, just through my own experience or through just other observations, if you don't provide stability within the day-to-day environment, then, you know, there can just be dysfunction or there can be like turnover. So you seem to like almost be like a conductor, I guess, a conductor, but that has engagement and buy-in and advancement. How do you create that entrepreneurial environment, but then also create stability, longevity, while also kind of making hard decisions when you need to make them? Well, people who are marginal performers are normally not comfortable around me. Uh, If you've got a leader who is aggressive, who's setting the stage, who has high work ethics, people with poor work ethics aren't comfortable around you. 
They're not. So in a lot of cases, they will self-select themselves out. Think about it. You know, you're driving hard all the time. Somebody's not a hard driver, they do not want to be around you because you make them feel very uncomfortable. Uh, I've had people that, uh, I've had uh, supervisors who wanted to be one of my direct reports, and I would always say, be careful what you ask for because I drive really hard. So I, managers, if you're going to work directly for me, you're going to have to be willing to take that hard push. You're going to have to be willing to drive hard. And I knew some people who thought they wanted to drive that hard. In reality, they just want the title. They don't want to drive that hard. And they put themselves in that position, they would be terminated. I could not keep them. Because what's the rule? The chain's only good as its weakest link. I've got one manager who's not driving hard, who's not taking care of the customer. He makes the whole team look that way. It's not fair to the team. So people will say, well, how do you let people go and you care about people that much. I care about the ones that are staying too. I have a responsibility to the team. So whenever I had to let someone go, Sam, it, it broke my heart, okay, as a person, but I had a greater responsibility to the team. If my team is solid, well, they're getting a reputation because I won't address this one, I call them C players, then that's on me. So I saw it as my responsibility to deal with that. So I would address weaknesses in the team do you do it do you do it quickly i mean does it vary depending on what decision needs to be made and then when you do make a decision do you automatic like do you just think through who else on the team can pick up those responsibilities and you just kind of roll with it what does that look like first i try to retrain the person i don't give up on people that quickly i will try to retrain you I'm, i'm a natural teacher so i'll try to teach you if you've got labor relations you're not connecting with your team I'll try to give you examples of that. Uh, it's uncomfortable, but I'll give you specific examples where I saw the lack of engagement. I had a manager once. He, he just, he didn't see it. He was a director. I was hired as a manager and director. And uh, we'd have employee retirement parties. I wouldn't miss, miss a funeral or retirement party. I would make them adjust the schedule of to make sure I was there. Okay. Because it's really important to give your people a proper send-off, okay? I had directors who didn't come to their own people's retirement party. Wouldn't come. Either they had to go to the bank, <laughs> you know, something that wasn't important, or they were in their office. I'm looking for the direct. like, where is this person's director? I sat down with the director, and I said, um, you had a couple of retirees yesterday. Where were you? Well, I was doing paperwork in my office. I said, do you know what message you sent to the team that was there? He said, well, no. I said, I said the team that was there, basically, once they retired, you threw them away. You didn't care. I said, you actually damaged the team that stayed because they know how you really feel. I said, if you had celebrated that individual, they would have said he really cared about his team. I said, you demonstrated you didn't care about your team. He said, I never thought about that. From that point forward, he never missed a party. Never missed a retirement party. That had been going on for 10 years, Sam. So how do you undo that? It's hard to undo. But people judge you by your actions more so than by your words. And so when you say you care about people, I'm more than willing to train. 
I've never fired anybody. People always fire themselves. Always. Because I gave them every opportunity to win. I used to explain to employees that I was letting go. They said, well, you wanted, to, you wanted to let me go. I said, I hired you. I said, it costs money to hire people. I don't hire people to fire them. I hire them to keep them. But obviously, I felt that you couldn't be, I couldn't save you. And you couldn't save yourself. And so, and actually, I'm, a, I'm just a tool in saving employees. Employees have to save themselves. I can be a good tool. I can provide input. But at the end of the day, they have to be willing to be saved. And if they don't want to save themselves, they just want you to give it to them, it's not going to happen. Change them as good as bridges link. Gotcha. And in small businesses, let's, let's switch over to the small business side. That's one of the number one problems that small businesses have. They can't compete. They can pay the same pay, because I've been through this in my career, uh, but we can't pay the same on benefits. So my employees, especially at Hardy Bottling, uh, they never left me because they love the experience. I used to always say that, hey, well, Carol, how'd you keep these employees? Well, I, said, I paid the same rate as Cargill and Coke and Pepsi. I didn't pay the same benefits, okay? But what I did, they had a better experience with me. My employees, when they ran the packaging line, they actually ran the line. They made decisions. And they saw a problem and you were going to respond to it. When they quit and went to one of the other big boys in manufacturing in town, uh, they were just a number. They need to show up by 3 o'clock. They need to do what the supervisor said. When they work for me, I expect them to think. I expect them to read the customer's uh, specification to make sure that we comply with the specification. I expected them to engage with the customer. How would you feel about yourself if you were allowed to talk to the CEO of Crunk or any of these beverage companies? It was acceptable. You would go home and tell your family, I talked to so-and-so, so-and-so today, who uh, 50 Cent was one of their investors, and da-da-da, and I made sure his product was right, as opposed to just coming in and punching the clock. Am I right? Yes, so I, I used to tell people all the time that we had a better experience. We gave our employees a better experience than the benefits that they got. Mm. I rarely had much turnover. They loved coming to work. Attendance was not a problem. They actually got there 30 minutes early. <laughs> They'd have coffee, talk to their friends, and they go to the line, the packing line. How, this is more of an accounting and investment question, like back into the business, but you're an accountant. Um, you're a trained accountant. You were more staff accounting, and then you evolved into entrepreneurship, owning the company, running the company, et cetera. How would you think about when making decisions uh, for either new employees or, or new manufacturing you know, equipment or new marketing expenses? How would you think about additional capital investments or expenses while also like monitoring the kind of monthly health of the company, the P&L financially, like, I don't really want to get too in, in detail, but I think a lot of small businesses, you know, they don't make true margin on their sales or they don't have good budget budgeting. Um, and so, you know, you're trained, you're a trained accountant, but like what advice would you give on knowing your pricing, knowing your costs, knowing your margin, but then also when you're when you're very into what you're doing, like the way that you've been throughout your career and you're wanting to build it and you're wanting to reinvest into it, what are some things to think about or learn on how to kind of make those aggressive investments for the good of the customer and for the good of the company? I would tell a small business that if they don't have that background 
uh, the, the training as an accountant to hire one. And not full-time because they can't afford, they don't have the margin to support that. But they need to probably have an accountant on their board or an accountant advisor who will look at their financials and will help them plan. Because what happens is if you're the person that's in the trenches, it's hard for you to see the forest for the trees. So you need somebody who's going to look at your information objectively. You need someone who's going to ask you questions who aren't so close to the problem and help draw those creative thoughts out of you. That can happen because I used to draw creative ideas out of my employees. They just need a good advisor and a good accountant who understands their business. It has to be somebody, Sam, that it's not somebody that's one and done. It needs to be somebody they're talking to once a quarter. Okay? So every quarter they get together for about an hour or so, and you share everything that's going on financially. Then you talk about what's going on in your business. You talk about what's going on with your customers. That person needs to have information about your business in their head. And then as that every quarter when you're meeting, you're sharing something. They're asking questions that are relevant to your business, okay? They're helping extract those creative ideas. Then when you get to the point where you need to put a capital plan together, they can help you say, okay, so you're telling me, and I'm looking at your financials, you're spending this much money on this, okay? If you get a piece of software, if you buy this software for X, you can actually get a you know return on investment because you bought a piece of software and now you're not putting man hours behind it. Or you invest in this machine because now your business has grown to a point where now you can automate. And then you look, you help them understand that if they bought a new piece of equipment, they can get a return on investment. Oh, okay. I got a response from something I was looking for. So this kind of ties into what you were talking about earlier about, you know, having somebody or a few people that are in your life that are giving you advice, like not just from the relational standpoint of just dealing with building the business, dealing with, you know, great things, things to be proud of and celebrate, challenges to navigate, but then also the financial kind of oversight and counsel. Yes. Like yes. What, what I'm hearing, a, kind of a theme and, and not just the personal and relational side, but then also more the objective analysis, financial side of it is just mentorship or community. And right. it doesn't have to be spread out wide, but just a, a few certain people that are not one and done, like you right. said. And, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, I don't have a lawyer on staff. Am I right? Why would I? If that's the case, something's really wrong, okay? Uh, that lawyer is just like that accountant I described to you. You need to have a relationship with that lawyer. Maybe you don't need to see him as much. And maybe you don't need to go out with him for that hour. But you need to have that lawyer, and he's not a retainer. He's somebody that knows you, who knows your business, who knows that you actually write contracts, you know, customer contracts, or you have these type of things going on. And every now and then you pick up the phone, you call that lawyer, and you're talking about things. You would be amazed at how much money, and we've got 10 more minutes, by the way. I've got to shut off at 4.30. But... That lawyer can guide you and save you hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's just like an accountant. And so you don't need them on staff, but you do need one that knows you, that knows your business. You know, and I'll tell you who that, who that was for me. Now, for, I'm a CPA, so it gets to be a little bit more difficult for me, but I need somebody who is not in the trenches with me. Ben Watkins with Watkins Ubrawl, I met Ben in 2006, probably three months after uh, I started Hardy Bodley. Three months. We were at, he had called together a bunch of small businesses and all the small business had a problem keeping accounts. And I had the same problem. The only difference is I'm, be, I'm a CPA, 
So I could step in and do the, the work that they were doing. Everybody else could not do that. So I would hire me another one full-time because the, the beverage business was big enough and needed a full-time accountant. But I would lose them to the bigger companies every time. FedEx and all the big boys would take my people. Uh, but for that gap in services, I could step in and do it myself. But I used Ben for the next five years. Ben and I would get together three or four times, if not in person, on the phone. I would tell him what was going on, what I was working on, and where I was trying to go. Then we talk about the financing side of it. He'd ask me a ton of questions. When he asked me all these questions, I could see things a lot clearer. I could see a lot clearer. Just having him, you know, that, that person who's sitting on the sidelines saying, Carolyn, throw the ball. He's running this way. Throw it this way. Okay. <laughs> so he was really good at that. And I mean, we're friends to this day. Uh, when I need somebody to just talk things, you know, just I, I need somebody with a clear head who knows me. And it's not only that he knows my business, but he knows my personality. He knows that if, I, if I've sent him something, 10 pages or something to review, he knows I've already reviewed them. And uh, he knows I have an opinion about it. And so he'll say, uh, well, Carolyn, what do you think? I, I, I was like, okay, Ben, you know, I called you for an opinion, okay? I said, I think it's a bad deal for these five reasons. And he said, well, he said, I think the same thing. I need, a val- I need validation like anybody else. So I try to surround myself with people who I trust their judgment, who, who trust me, I trust them, who knows me. Those type of relationships are absolutely invaluable. And if you're a 20-year-old, a 40-year-old can do that for you. Okay, a 40-year-old. It doesn't have to be, maybe a 25-year-old can't, okay? <laughs> you need somebody who's got some different experiences, somebody that you're going to trust, somebody who's got your back. Everybody needs that. Who was doing that for you when you were buying, buying uh, the Coors facility? You know, you will be surprised. Uh, Danny Parker, who was the CEO of Stacks, and, and she was my emotional support. She, has, she had other... Uh, relationships I didn't have. So there were people, I need some advisors to come in from a different area. Dina used her network and told them about me to support me. On the other hand, John Moore, who used to be the president of the chamber, I talked to John two weeks ago. He endorsed a new book that I'm working on. And um, he and I talked for a while. I said, John, I need you to endorse this because you are the one that was there for my first business. John, I needed somebody to look at my, um, my plan, my business plan, and I wanted John Malmo to look at it. I only saw John on stage, so we didn't have a relationship. <laughs> but I knew him and John were personal friends, John Moore and John Malmo. Personally. Right. So I used, but John and I were personal friends, John Moore and I. So I used my personal relationship with John Moore to get to John Malmo. And John Malmo allow me to pitch to him for several hours and evaluate my business plan. Well, yeah. Relationship, relationship, relationship. That is great. This is going to be such an encouragement to somebody out there that, you know, is in the throes of it, is building something and just, we've talked about so much. We've covered so much. I'm not going to recap everything. Well, I'll do that in some show notes, but I mean, just even that point specifically, just an encouragement to all of us, regardless of where we're at, that we need people in our corner that, you know, are relational support, emotional support, and then also financial helping us just see things when we can't see them because we're so, you know, we can't see the forest through the trees, like you said. Last question I have 
for anybody listening to this, what are some nonprofits in the Memphis community that you love and cherish, that you believe in, that you think need to be checked out and supported? You know, I think that, well, right now with the pandemic, you know, my focus is just on public safety right now. And so, you know, any donations that we make, anything that we do, uh, is to Community Christ, uh, Community Health Center, Church Health Center, uh, making sure the food bank. Uh, we've been very, those three organizations, we've done quite a bit in the last month, uh, making sure they have, you know, face shields, donating cash for the food bank to get food. That's for now. But once you're back to some degree of normal, and, the, and normal will never be the same, forget about that, it's over. We have to go back to workforce because there's nothing greater in my career than seeing a person earn a living wage who can support his family. It not only affects his family, but his children has dreams and aspirations. A lot of people don't understand when a parent doesn't have dreams and aspirations, they kill the child's dream. We have got to create dream and aspirational goals for the parent so that the child can have similar dreams and goals. Wow. So that is where we have to spend our time. That is great. Where can uh, people find you? Like on Twitter, on LinkedIn? How can they get in touch with you through any of those channels? I'm LinkedIn. I'm Twitter. Um, very easily. What's your Twitter uh, name? Are you curious? I think Carolyn Chisholm Hardy. Okay, great. Okay. Sam, uh, good talking to you. If you need clarification on something, let me know, okay? I've loved it. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'll follow up with you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please make sure and leave a review or send me a note. Also, please tune in next week for a new episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Sam P. Coates or find me on Facebook for the next episode release as well. Hope you have a great day.